Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Before Gus Hall became one of the FBI's most wanted fugitives, he was a child growing up in a log cabin on Minnesota's Masabi Iron Range. His parents were dirt-poor Finnish immigrants and communists. Paul left school after the eighth grade and found work in a logging camp. In 1927, when he was 17, his father recruited him into the Communist Party of the United States. As Hall once told an interviewer, when you work in the woods from sunup to sundown and it's 50 degrees below zero and you eat slop and you make $30 a month, then what was said at home begins to make sense. At 21, Hall went to the Lenin Institute in Moscow for two years of training and indoctrination. He returned to the United States in 1933, and he made his name organizing labor unions at a time when that was a dangerous business. Here's Hall describing the difficulty of this work. The corporations had their secret police following you, so you had to get away from them first because you couldn't endanger the uh, steelworker you went to visit. And then you had to go into the home and, and spend, uh, you know, one evening with one worker, just convincing him, number one, that it's possible, and convincing him that it's possible from the viewpoint of security of his job. As the years went by, Gus Hall rose in the ranks of the American Communist Party, which had started in Chicago back in 1919, not long after the Bolshevik Revolution erupted in Moscow. The party's mission was to overthrow the American government and replace it with something like Soviet Russia. By the 1940s, the party had grown to include almost 80,000 card-carrying members. And over the years, its presidential and congressional candidates won hundreds of thousands of votes. Here's Earl Browder, who ran as the party's candidate for president in 1936 and 1940. A strong working class, a powerful, united labor movement. This is a necessity for democracy, for progress, and for higher standards of living. In turn, the party had its virtues. It supported the rights of black people before the civil rights movement gathered strength. It stood with workers and the unemployed during the Great Depression, when millions of Americans thought that capitalism had failed. Today it is the duty of all of us 
to help labor haul down the black flag of Wall Street piracy, which flies over our basic industries. But the party had a fatal flaw. Its leaders were slavishly devoted to Stalin's Russia without knowing the reality of what went on within it. They took their political direction and many millions of dollars from the Kremlin. They created an underground for Soviet espionage. One of the greatest peacetime spy dramas in the nation's history reaches its climax as Julius Rosenberg and Morton Sobel, convicted of revealing atomic secrets to the Russians, enter the federal building in New York to hear their doom. Another of the spy ring, Mrs. Ethel Rosenberg... The party's members deceived themselves into thinking that Soviet Russia was a worker's paradise, while millions of peasants were dying of famine. To them... Stalin was a magnificent hero, not a murderous dictator. After World War II, the FBI escalated its war against American communists, among them Gus Hall. J. Edgar Hoover called Hall a powerful, deceitful, dangerous foe of Americanism. J. Edgar Hoover, head of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The Communist Party of the United States is a fifth column if there ever was one. It reveals a condition akin to disease that spreads like an epidemic. And like an epidemic, a quarantine is necessary to keep it from infecting this nation. Communism in reality... In July of 1948, Hall was indicted for rebellion under a law called the Smith Act. So was the entire leadership of the American Communist Party. In the federal court in New York, trial begins for 11 of the 12 communist leaders who are charged with a conspiracy to teach and advocate the forcible overthrow of the U.S. government. With 400 police on hand, defense lawyers charge it's a police trial within an armed camp. After a 10-month trial, a jury convicted Hall and his comrades. Hall jumped bail and fled to Mexico, but he was caught and brought back to America. He served five and a half years in Leavenworth Federal Prison. In 1959, after Gus Hall got out of prison, he became the leader of the Communist Party of the United States. He held that post for more than 40 years until he died in the year 2000. See, with with American capitalism, the priority, the top priority is corporate profits. And everything Nixon does, and in fact everything uh, the Democratic administrations have done, is with an eye to safeguard this top priority, which is profits for the uh, private uh, corporations. And we, of course, propose that... Paul ran for president four times. Although he talked a good game, he never got more than 59,000 votes. The communist vote is a vote for life. A vote for the communist ticket is a vote for the immediate end to all wars, including in Indochina. It is a vote to end racism, to all forms of discrimination. Paul never wavered in his belief that the United States was ripe for a communist revolution because Marx and Lenin had taught him that it was inevitable. He never stopped dreaming of a Soviet America, even after the fall of the Soviet Union. That world had vanished, but not his vision of it. Paul wanted America to be like Russia, not realizing he was believing a lie. 
but less than two decades after his death. A leader would come to power who finally did make America more like Russia. Just not in the ways Paul dreamed of. This president wasn't creating a worker's paradise in the image of Vladimir Lenin. He was building an authoritarian regime in the image of Vladimir Putin. I'm Tim Weiner, and this is Whirlwind. On today's episode, we'll speak to two very different experts about what President Trump has done to American democracy and its institutions. We'll also speak to one unexpected guest who wonders if maybe I need to rethink everything. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. On November 2nd, in the bicentennial year of 1976, more than 80 million Americans went to the polls to choose their president. And good evening from our CBS News election headquarters. Certainly a lot of people turned out today. It turns out to have been a perhaps a record turnout across the nation, all across the country. The incumbent, Gerald Ford, was an unelected president. He had risen to the Oval Office when Richard Nixon resigned. The challenger was a peanut farmer from Georgia named Jimmy Carter, who ran on a platform of human rights and equal justice under law. On election day, a young man with a diamond stud earring and a rebellious spirit walked into a voting booth, and he cast his ballot in protest, not for Ford and not for Carter, but for the communist. Well, I was a 21-year-old. I was a bit of a rebel. That's John Brennan. 37 years after voting for Gus Hall, he became the director of the Central Intelligence Agency. I had returned from going to school in Egypt in 1975. And so I had Watergate and Vietnam on my mind. And going into that polling booth for the first time in a presidential election, I was already dismayed over partisan politics and didn't know who I was going to vote for. And so I went in there. I didn't really know much about Gus Hall. I had heard about him. And so I decided uh, to flip the lever, and it was basically a protest vote. A vote of protest that will be counted over and over again by the corporation godfathers is a vote for myself, Gus Hall, and Jarvis Tyner for president and vice president. Thank you very much. And what did you know about Soviet communism at the time? Well, I had read about it in in college and understood uh, what it was in the Soviet Union and how different types of communist movements gain traction and put down some roots in countries. Again, I, you know, thinking back on it now, uh, it was just basically you know, a decision I made at, at the spur of the moment. So we'll uh, fast forward uh, 30-odd years, and you became CIA director in, in 2013. How did you assess the state of Russian political warfare or active measures at the time? Well, I had a fairly good grounding in what the Russians had been up to in the previous decades um, when I was at CIA previously, and I served as George Tenet's chief of staff and 
deputy executive director. I was familiar with a lot of the counterintelligence investigations that were going on and knew about Russian efforts to subvert and undermine American democracy. So I, I knew that they were constantly on the march to try to gain insight into what they could in terms of accessing intelligence, information, and you know, giving things back to Mother Russia that could be used against us. By August 2016, the CIA understood that Russian spies, directed by Vladimir Putin, were subverting the American presidential election. They aimed to put Donald Trump in the White House. Brennan briefed the leaders of Congress. The aim was to get them to issue a bipartisan statement against the Russian assault on democracy. But the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, was dead set against that. I think he was very concerned that the revelations that the Russians were engaged in the election could undermine Trump's chances, and I think he wanted to prevent that from happening. McConnell single-handedly blocked a public statement in the name of the American government. And so, the American people were never fully informed about the nature of the Russian attack on the election until after the election. On January 21st, 2017, the day after Donald J. Trump was sworn into office, the new president went to Langley, Virginia, and walked into CIA headquarters. President Trump had a very busy first day, including a trip to the CIA. That face-to-face encounter today, an about-face for Mr. Trump after his public clashes with the intelligence community. There is nobody that feels stronger about the intelligence community and the CIA than Donald Trump. There is nobody. The day after you turned over control of the CIA to Trump's appointee, Mike Pompeo, the newly elected president came to CIA headquarters. What did the president do that day? Well, he lied. That's number one. I love you. I respect you. There's nobody I respect more. You're going to do a fantastic job. And they sort of made it sound like I had a feud with the intelligence community. And I just want to let you know, the reason you're number one stop, uh, it is exactly the opposite. Exactly. And they understand that, too. And when Trump started to bluster in front of that wall and was talking about the size of his inaugural crowd and just went off on a political rant, um, I felt as though it was wholly inconsistent with what I think, first of all, the solemnity of that lobby. But we had a massive field of people. You saw that. Packed. I get up this morning, I turn on one of the networks, and they show an empty field. I said, wait a minute. I made a speech. I looked out. The field was, it looked like a million, a million and a half people. But also, it was um, so antithetical to everything that I expect a president of the United States to do, particularly when he's talking to those um, who serve around the world uh, with great distinction and great courage. 18 months later, Trump stood side by side with Putin at a press conference in Helsinki. He said he believed Putin's innocence, that Russia never attacked the election. After hearing that, John Brennan went ballistic. American Former CIA Director John Brennan just tweeted, and I quote, Donald Trump's press conference performance in Helsinki rises to and exceeds the threshold of high crimes and misdemeanors. It was nothing short of treasonous. 
How did you read that? Well, I think it was one of the most worrisome developments of Trump's uh, administration and presidency. He decided to meet uh, one-on-one with Putin. They each had a translator. Trump did not want his national security advisor or his secretary of state to accompany him. And so for, I think it was over an hour, the two of them um, were engaged in conversation. I don't know what was said. I don't know what notes might have been passed. And the translator on the U.S. side, uh, that person's notes were taken, uh, according to various reports. And I had concerns. My only meeting with Donald Trump when I briefed him in early January of 2017 about the Russian interference in the election, I had concerns about whether Donald Trump would protect America's secrets to include the sources of our knowledge. And so that meeting with Putin really raised deep concerns in me about what he might have said that could have compromised uh, U.S. national security interests. Because I really don't trust Trump when it comes to Mr. Putin, given his very, very puzzling and obsequious attitude toward Mr. Putin. And then when the both of them came out to the, the, the lecterns and spoke to the world, and Donald Trump said to the world that he sees no reason why Vladimir Putin and the Russians would have interfered in the presidential election. He basically, he, Trump, betrayed the American people, the American intelligence community, the CIA, and by siding with an authoritarian leader like Vladimir Putin over the consensus view of the intelligence community, which is why I then went out with a, on Twitter with a comment saying that Trump's actions were nothing short of treasonous. One of the KGB's highest goals in the Cold War was to defame the CIA and the FBI and the State Department, which is exactly what Donald Trump has been doing for four years. For 75 years, Russian active measures aimed to damage the institutions of American national security and ultimately American democracy itself. Has Trump accomplished what they have failed to achieve? Well, he certainly built on their efforts, and I think he has succeeded more than the Russians have over the years in undermining the credibility and the perceived integrity of the intelligence community, the law enforcement community, our system of justice. And so one of the Russians' goals in the Soviet go before it was to cast the democratic system that we have here in a very dark uh, light. And so the charges that Donald Trump has levied against our institutions of being corrupt, of being a you know partisan, of being involved in in politics and politicizing their roles and responsibilities, have really taken root, unfortunately, among a certain portion of our country, because Donald Trump has fueled it and has given it credibility. I don't think he's doing it um, for Russian purposes. He's doing it for his own. Because just like any authoritarian, he's going to try to undermine the, the credibility, the reputation, the work of those institutions of government that he fears, law enforcement. The top of the FBI was scum. Uh, the judicial system. President Trump's attacks on the judiciary are raising safety concerns for some judges. Mr. Intelligence services, the media. The press 
has created a rigged system and poisoned the mind of so many of our voters. And so by delegitimizing their worth, their integrity, their honesty, he is casting doubt on anything that they might do or say that is counter to what are in his interests. And so therefore, as he pursues this very personal narcissistic agenda and dividing this country and tearing down those institutions, he is also uh, supporting and advancing the interests of Russia and not just Russia, our other adversaries around the world as well. He is weakening the United States, our ability to govern ourselves, to function, and then to assume or to pursue the leadership role that I think we rightly need to play on the global stage. You're telling us that the president of the United States has undermined the architecture of American national security, aren't you? I think he's done a lot to not just degrade its capabilities, but also harm its its standing, its reputation, domestically and internationally. But yes, Donald Trump has hurt those institutions, and I know that it's uh, demoralizing uh, to those who work uh, hard every day to protect their fellow citizens. Director Brennan, I submit to you that Donald Trump, no less than Vladimir Putin, has been conducting political warfare against the American government. He has attacked the rule of law. He has attacked freedom of the press. He has attacked the legitimacy of elections. He has spewed Russian propaganda into our political discourse. So I ask you, has Trump made America more like Russia? I think uh, Donald Trump has made the office of the presidency in the United States currently much more like the office of Vladimir Putin. He has hurt our democratic institutions. He has uh, really raised serious questions about the democratic principles that undergird our society and our government. Democracies generally don't fall in coups. They die by the steady degradation of the rule of law. Are we a failing democracy right now today? Well, I think we're a, a weakening democracy, certainly. And I lay a lot of that blame on one of our premier political parties, the Republican Party. I am just aghast and appalled that the individuals in Congress, both in the House and the Senate from the Republican side, have been so willing not just to tolerate what Donald Trump has done, but to enable it. Director Brennan, the manipulation of the American mind through Russian political warfare has been a smashing success for the Kremlin. Vladimir Putin's edict that there are no facts and there is no truth and nothing can be believed has worked. Tens of millions of Americans believe that the Democratic Party is a Satan-worshipping cult that kills babies. How do we fix this? Well, you know, I used to think that the Russians were the best and most sophisticated purveyors of disinformation in the world. But I must say that Donald Trump and his campaign have really exceeded Russian capabilities. And so, yes, Vladimir Putin has done a lot on this disinformation front over the last you know, decade or more. 
But I think Donald Trump has brought it to a new height. And just in the short span of four years or so, he has surpassed what the Russians have been able to accomplish. And so uh, this poisoning of a large portion of the American electorate's views and attitudes and belief systems is really a result of a snake oil salesman like Donald Trump, who's been able to sell his wares as the truth when it's anything but. So in a sense, he really has made America more like Russia. Yes. And that's what authoritarian leaders do. They try to convince the masses that they are, you know, the savior of the masses. And they will just tell whatever, you know, stories uh, they can in order to uh, develop that that cult-like following. And that's what Donald Trump has done. The week after he met Putin in Helsinki, Trump addressed a veterans convention in Kansas City. He told them, and told us, not to believe the news about him. And just remember, what you're seeing and what you're reading is not what's happening. I heard that, and it reminded me of George Orwell's novel, 1984. Orwell wrote, The party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. It was their final, most essential command. This is what authoritarian rulers do. They want us to lose our faith in our ears and our eyes, in what we read and what we observe, so that we can be more dependent on them. Our next guest, the journalist Masha Gessen, who was born in the Soviet Union, sees the United States becoming like a post-Soviet state under President Trump. We'll talk to Masha after the break. This is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. In the Cold War, American communists had a romantic image of the Soviet Union as a place where everyone was equal and the people were in charge. They were swallowing the lies of the Kremlin. People born and raised in Soviet Russia 
also had to believe these lies to survive in the communist system. At least, they had to pretend that they did. Until they didn't. Masha Gessen was born in Moscow in 1967. The Gessen family won the right to emigrate to America in 1981. Masha went back a decade later to work as a journalist in Moscow, just as Soviet Russia was collapsing. Masha became one of the greatest journalists of that era and of Putin's Russia. Their work was a beacon for Russians who supported democracy and human rights, including gay rights. But the political pressure from the Kremlin became unbearable. Masha came back to the United States and now writes for The New Yorker. Among their extraordinary books is The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia, which won the National Book Award. When you were a kid in Soviet Russia in the 70s, your parents saw a TV show, a news report about a beautiful new highway that had just been built. And you all got in the car for a road trip so you could check it out. And that story has stuck in your mind, right? Yeah, I wouldn't call it a highway. But yeah, my parents were planning a trip. And maps were extremely hard to come by in the Soviet Union. A lot of geographic information, cartographic information was classified. And, you know, you basically like had very few ways of knowing where there were roads. Also, maps were very slowly updated. So my parents were like planning this trip around some historic sites in Russia. And suddenly we see on television that there's a new road there that connects two cities that weren't previously connected. And so that changed our plans completely. And literally a few days later, we were on the road to the city of Yaroslavl. And we started looking, you know, in the general sort of direction where that road would have been. We couldn't find anything. And so we started asking people, where's the new road? And they're like, there's no new road. Finally, someone brought us to a spot where that news report about the new road had been filmed. And there were just a few square meters of new paving for the purposes of the news report. And I would imagine that it's not random that that news report was produced. I imagine that there was a five-year plan that included building this particular road. So at a certain point when the deadline came, or maybe before the deadline came, they cheerfully had to report to the higher-ups that it had been accomplished, right? Because five-year plans always had to be triumphantly fulfilled and over-fulfilled. But only for the purposes of, of reporting upstairs, not, not actually for the purposes of, of producing real stuff. And here we have a gigantic throbbing metaphor for the coming collapse of the Soviet Empire. Exactly. I mean, one of the things that has been sort of forgotten or not understood by a lot of people was the extent to which no one knew anything because everything was falsified. The country was built on a lie. The country was built on a trillion little lies and some big ones. And then your family came to America uh, in the 1980s. How did it look to you? One of the things actually that I recall that may be relevant was that at first I thought that the United States was a really dangerous country because 
whenever you turned on the news, you heard about natural disasters and you heard about crime, but mostly I was impressed by natural disasters because I was convinced at the age of 14 that natural disasters were something really exotic. Nothing disastrous ever happened in the Soviet Union. Not that you could see. Not that I could see, not that I could possibly know. I mean, there have been you know, severe windstorms even in Moscow, but they were never reported. Certainly forest fires, um, you know, hurricanes, storms, floods, all sorts of things that I have since learned happen in Russia and in the former Soviet Union, you know, the mudslides. Um, they were just never on television. So you had the illusion of living in this very stable, stagnant, safe place because you lacked any information that didn't touch you personally, right? Unless you had personally experienced upheaval or calamity, you thought that no one ever had any upheaval or calamity. You were living in Ronald Reagan's America, where the Soviet Union was the evil empire. Did you buy that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, look, I think that Reagan was wrong about most things, but he was, he was right about that. It was the evil empire. To ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding, and thereby remove yourself from the struggle between right and wrong and good and evil. When you returned to Russia as a journalist, did you see a ghost of a chance that the country could be a democracy, or was all of that just us in the West looking through the, the beer goggles of the post-Cold War world, thinking that history was over and everybody wanted to be just like us? Oh, I was a true believer. Uh, I really thought that that Russia was going to become a democracy. You know, I... I happened to belong to exactly the two demographics that were most sort of swept up in that vision of, of, of the world and that vision of history. One demographic is Western observers of Russia and the other is Moscow intellectuals. So there was a hope. Largely, I think, in the first two years of Yeltsin's rules so from 91 till 93. Again, those groups that I belong to, Moscow intellectuals and, and, and Western observers, were probably the last to catch up to the fact that that you know that that hope was misplaced. You know, it was absolutely extraordinary. Every every story I covered was new. Every um, you know every way of writing about it was new. When the Soviet bloc collapsed and all these countries started rebuilding themselves, we used the language of Western liberal democracy to describe them, partly because we assumed that that's what they were going to become. They were going to become Western-style liberal democracies. And partly because that's the language of political science. And that was certainly the spirit of the 1990s. Look, Poland's a democracy now. Hungary's a democracy now. The Czech Republic is a democracy now. They are all in NATO. They're just like us. Russia will come along too, something like that, no? Yes. And I think that that was supported by, again, by Russian media and by the Russian government up through the early aughts. The early aughts being the first years of Vladimir Putin. Correct. Who has since strangled the infant Russian democracy in its cradle. Who actually began strangling uh, the infant Russian democracy as soon as he came to power, but continued to use some of that language. Look, <laughs> the baby's not dead. Here, look. Exactly, exactly. You know, look. This parrot is not deceased. <laughs> Precisely. 
We, we were just talking uh, to a couple of CIA veterans uh, who spent many, many years in Moscow. And they believe, to their great dismay, that America is looking more than a little like Russia. You have the same sense, don't you? Yes. I recently wrote a piece about the United States being like a post-Soviet country. I mean, that's, it's a really hard thing for me to write. I probably should write more of that kind of thing and, um, and more, more bravely. But, of course, I, 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 I have to keep questioning myself. You know, that's most of my, my life experience is in Russia. I've obviously I've covered other countries. I have spent a lot, a lot of time living in the United States, but I've lived in Russia for most of my life. And I've spent most of my professional life writing about Russia. So I think, you know, am I just seeing signs of Russia everywhere? Do I have no other interpretive language aside from what I experienced in Russia? But, but there's an extraordinary set of similarities. It's been something I've been thinking about a lot recently. It's that sense of disconnect between what you hear on TV or what you hear on TV when you're listening to government representatives and your lived reality. And the other is the sense that nothing works. You've written that Trump has created a political culture reminiscent of the Central Committee of the Communist Party. You, you call this reporting upstairs. What is that? So in the Soviet Union, um, again, there were these five-year plans. There were, the, uh, there were these um, goals that were set, but it was entirely divorced from what was actually produced, what actually existed, and what people actually experienced. And all of this, you know, all of these plans and all of these achievements existed only for the purpose of giving cheerful reports to the Central Committee. So the minister of uh, what was called light industry, light industry is the clothing and you know, shoe industry. So the minister of light industry would report that this many millions of pairs of shoes had been manufactured and this many school uniforms, uniforms had been manufactured. And the people knew that they, you couldn't get a school uniform when your kid was going to school. You had to get a special you know, ration card to be able to buy one uniform a year. And even then, you had to like then hunt around for the stores where you'd be able to use this ration card. But the minister would have reported it, and then the government would have sort of celebrated yet another achievement. And the same with shoes, cars, food, um, you know, coffee, whatever you can imagine. Like anything that could be produced ostensibly for the people was actually actually existed only on paper and only for the purpose of advancing up the party career ladder, but really in the immediate sense, just from for the purpose of getting praised by the leaders of the Communist Party. You know, we have often compared what has happened uh, with the White House's response to the coronavirus, especially in the early stages, to Chernobyl. There's something incredibly familiar or incredibly similar about um, concealing information about grave danger to people's lives. But I think that sort of the cultural similarity that I would focus on there is that exact thing, is that I don't think that people, that the bureaucrats who covered up the Chernobyl catastrophe 
we're thinking, let's not tell the people to make sure that they don't panic or let's just hide the danger and hope that it blows over. No, I think all they were thinking about was the expectation that they would report upstairs that everything was fine. Everything is fine. What they were was what they were supposed to tell their audience, which was their superiors, not the people of the Soviet Union. And this in turn would explain why a well-respected scientist like Dr. Deborah Birx would sit silently while the president talks about drinking bleach to cure coronavirus. Right, and then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs and it... It's not just uh, Dr. Burke sitting silently uh, while he's talking about drinking bleach. It's, as this devastating report in the New York Times showed, Dr. Burke's basically telling the president what he wanted to hear, which is uh, in early May or late April, telling him that the numbers were looking better, that if the C- if the CDC was saying otherwise, it was being alarmist and she wouldn't believe anything that was coming out of the CDC because that's what he wanted to hear. He wanted to hear that the numbers were looking better. How would you describe the job President Trump is doing behind the scenes and in front of the camera, Dr. Burks? He's been so attentive to the scientific literature and the details and the data. And I think his... his you covered Vladimir Putin for 20 years. You've now covered Trump for, well, it's going on five years now since he started running for president. What similarities do you see between Putin and Trump? They certainly seem to hate many of the same things. (laughs) Uh, That's funny. I've never really thought of them as a hater of things, as a a similar, uh, as a trait where you can talk about similarities. But I think that's a great observation. You know, it's funny because they are temperamentally really different. I mean, Putin prides himself on being always controlled, unreadable, in, you know, in charge of his emotions, Trump is raw emotion. Trump's charisma is really rooted in just how in touch he is with his emotions and with his audience's emotions, right? Something that you could never say about Vladimir Putin. But I think that they have pretty similar ideas about power. I think they both think that political power is sort of raw, violent power. I think that They believe that unanimity and obedience are sort of attributes of power. They both find protest absolutely terrifying. But these guys lie in order to assert their right to say whatever they want, whenever they want to. And that's a really different way of dealing with speech And it's also, you know, it's a very totalitarian impulse because it creates this kind of anything can be said, nothing can be believed, but some things will have to be accepted because there's great power behind them. Uh, You write about Trump's performance of power. Uh, He juts his jaw like Mussolini. He struts and he shouts like a tin horn dictator. He acts like an authoritarian. But is this just an act? A lot of power is performance. And so it is really, really important 
to look at how Trump performs, what kinds of imagery he is using, what he is referencing in the way he looks, in the way he speaks, in the way he, he gestures. And I think it's important for us to understand that when we have a leader who is performing fascism, and he is no doubt doing exactly that, whether he's capable of grasping the concept or not, and we have a large part of the population that accepts that performance, that validates it as a way of leading the country, then we're not in some sort of make-believe world. That's what we're dealing with, right? A performance of fascism that is accepted and affirmed is fascism. Putin said, as to the question of who can or can't be believed, and whether anyone can be believed, no one can be believed. And this is a principle of Russian political warfare under Putin, to convince you, me, Americans, everyone, that because there are no facts and because there is no truth, there is no purpose in trying to understand the mechanisms of power. Uh, you know, go home, play video games. It's all a fucking lie. But it's worse than that. He actually believes that there is no truth. He believes that nothing is knowable. There is no such thing as fact. We cannot possibly live in a shared reality. Unless, of course, we want to inhabit his reality, which is ever-shifting because nothing is true. And I think that Trump probably basically believes that as well. He has some basic ideas about sort of how power works and, and that power gives him the right to adulation and that power gives him the right to accumulate more money. But other than that, he doesn't believe anything. He believes only in power. And the more power there is, the more you know, he can say whatever he wants. And then what, the more he says whatever he wants and it's accepted, the more power he has. In his embrace of conspiracy theory, Trump has taken this to a level that we really haven't seen in American political discourse. He seems to embrace the wacky world of QAnon. He seems to believe or have believed what Putin told him, that it was the Ukrainians who screwed with the 2016 election. And that belief, and Putin told him that, and he believed it. And that belief got him impeached. Yeah, again, I think you are still holding on to this idea that maybe Trump believes something. I think he believes nothing. Yeah, he believes nothing. So it's not that Putin told him that there's a server and, and Trump was like, oh, yeah, let's like, let's find the truth, which is, you know, inherent in any conspiracy theory, I think, is this idea that there's a secret that will be revealed that makes everything clear. Clarity is not at the end of this journey or any journey that Trump takes us on. We go back to this matter of there are no facts and there is no truth. And it, it's just as George Orwell wrote, political language is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable. And I note with interest for the record that the week after Trump's election, the Oxford English Dictionary selected post-truth as the international word of the year. And not long thereafter, the historian Timothy Snyder, who we, we both know and, and admire, Timothy Snyder wrote, to abandon facts is to abandon freedom. If nothing is true, then no one can criticize power because there's no basis upon which to do so. Post-truth is pre-fascism. Is that where we are? 
That is absolutely where we are. I mean, I can't, I can't say it any better than that. I don't know that we're pre-fascism. You know, we already have children in cages. We have a government that fans, you know, the flames of hatred to further its own power. We have a government that is callously letting a pandemic rage because, at least partly because, it's killing people who are undesirable as voters. We have a, gov- a president who doesn't let a day go by without casting aspersions on the voting process. I'm not so sure we're pre-fascism. You know, fascism doesn't announce its arrival uh, by saying, okay, now we have a fascist state. Fascism takes hold over time, and we're in that process. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Most of you know by now, this podcast is based on my latest book, The Folly and the Glory, America, Russia, and Political Warfare, 1945 to 2020. I had a research assistant on that book named Emma Beebe Doyle. I am very fond of her. She's my daughter. I asked her to read the manuscript, and I had a secret agenda behind that. Emma was born in 1996. The Cold War was before her time. She's as distant from it as I am from World War II. And I wondered, how would a 24-year-old respond to the events of the 20th century? And after she read the first chapter, she turned to me and said, in so many words, What the hell is this Western democracy you keep talking about? When was America ever a democracy? You're confusing an ideal with what's real. And that shook me to the marrow of my bones. I guess I just felt like you kept talking about all these outside forces threatening Western democracy without ever critiquing what you're actually defending in Western democracy. And, well, just in my life, I'm 24. And by the time I was five, 9-11 happened and we entered a war that we haven't gone out of. We entered a war that's still going on and then entered another war that was based on a lie. And then, you know, everything else that happened, (laughs) drones and Trump. And I just don't have an experience of seeing Western democracy as something worth defending. And I think the ideal of Western democracy and of the U.S. in general is based on lies. I mean, the Constitution was written by a bunch of slave-owning men. At the time, we had also were in the process of committing genocide against people who originally lived here. 
And we're also enslaving a whole nother population. And uh, to me, that negates the very founding of the ideal itself that we're trying to live up to. All my life, I'd seen America and Russia through the prism of the Cold War. And I had thought, like John Brennan and Masha Gessen, that an autocratic president had made our country more Russian. And now, Emma was telling me that maybe Trump's America and Putin's Russia weren't all that different to begin with. When I was talking to you about this, you kept talking about how, well, we may not have lived up to our ideals, but we can keep trying. And, you know, that's why it's an experiment and all that. But the ideals were, you know, bunk from the start, I think. (laughs) I mean, you know, the hypocrisy of it goes beyond parts of the founding and the ideals of this country, but is embedded in this every part of the structure of how the U.S. was set up and run and continues to run. And I have trouble seeing as as something to defend. So in the book and in this podcast, we've come to a kind of a terrible conclusion that Trump has made America more like Russia, more like Putin's Russia. What do you think about that? I think of the differentiation you're making of America and Russia um, is that one is a free society and a democracy and one is an autocracy. I think that that um, is a false comparison or false differentiation maybe because Trump has, I think, revealed the ways in which America can easily slip into autocracy. I mean, we have a secret police. (laughs) We have um, ICE that is rounding up people and putting them in concentration camps. We have spy operations on our own citizens. I mean, I just don't see the the grand differentiation that could be, you know, uh, the, the, the way that they talk about America and Russia during the Cold War. I mean, I just don't think that is the case anymore. If Emma's right, we are in deep trouble. Yes, we had a free and fair election. And yes, Trump will leave the White House, but he will leave a failing democracy behind. We are not one nation indivisible, but two, one red and one blue. They are in a cold war with one another. Our divisions, deepened by our president, make it easier for disinformation and deception to prevail. Today, Trump and his allies are waging a gigantic disinformation campaign, claiming that the election was a fraud. And what about tomorrow? We are on the brink of a world where we will face new weapons of political warfare. Those weapons are being tested for battle right now. Russia and China are using artificial intelligence, machine learning, and big data to create sophisticated forms of deception like deep fake videos in which political leaders can be made to appear to say anything at all. They can manufacture their own reality, and they will. And that's the next episode of Whirlwind.
Whirlwind is presented by Cadence 13, Jigsaw Productions, and Prologue Projects. The show is written by me, Tim Weiner, and produced by Noel Mosban, Andrew Parsons, and Leon Nafok, with editorial support from Madison White. The story is based on my book, The Folly and the Glory, America, Russia, and Political Warfare. Whirlwind is executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Alex Gibney, Stephen Fisher, Stacey Offman, Richard Perello, Joey Mara, and John Schmidt. Our next guest, the journalist Masha Gessen, who was born in the Soviet Union. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet, and I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.